0: Police arrested a 17-year-old for shooting two protesters in Kenosha, Wisconsin. The NBA launched a wildcat strike in response to the police shooting of Jacob Blake that spread across the sports world. And we're joined by Raja Rajagopalan and Alison Killing to talk about their bombshell report on the surge in Muslim detention camps in China.
1: The date, August 27th, 2020.
0: The Time News O'Clock.
1: Hello, friends. I'm Hayes Brown.
0: And I'm Casey Rackham. Welcome to BuzzFeed's News O'Clock.
1: Oh, God. It's been an absolutely wild 24 hours since we last talked, Casey.
0: My anxiety peaked to no other.
1: Oh, gosh. Okay, so let's just dive right in and get to all of the top stories. Here's what you need to know. First up. 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse was arrested yesterday for allegedly shooting three protesters, two of whom died of their wounds, on Tuesday night in Kenosha, Wisconsin. When you last heard from us, there were rumors that an arrest had taken place. Soon after we recorded, there was confirmation that Rittenhouse had been taken into custody in his hometown of Antioch, Illinois. He's been charged with first-degree intentional homicide in Kenosha and was separately charged as a fugitive from justice in Antioch, according to police reports obtained by BuzzFeed News. A BuzzFeed News investigation of his social media footprint showed that Rittenhouse was an ardent supporter of the pro-cop movement Blue Lives Matter. Almost all of his public posts on Facebook were about supporting police officers and he was a member of a public safety cadet program with his local police force. In a press conference yesterday, Kenosha County Sheriff David Beth attempted to explain why Rittenhouse wasn't detained after the shooting despite people telling officers he'd just shot someone.
2: I You have such an incredible tunnel vision. You have no idea what's outside, outside right here, if you're looking right here. It just...
3: So, again, I'm not making an excuse. I'm just telling you from personal experience, but you could have done that.
1: Rittenhouse, by the way, was also in the front row of a Trump rally in January, whose campaign he also supported online. The Trump campaign worked to distance itself from Rittenhouse, saying in a statement to BuzzFeed News, quote... This individual had nothing to do with our campaign, and we fully support our fantastic law enforcement for their swift action in this case.
0: Actually, Hayes, I'm going to jump in because that story segues perfectly into the biggest story in sports yesterday. Yesterday, in response to the Kenosha police shooting of Jacob Blake and the aftermath, a Wildcat strike spread across the sports world with players refusing to play. It started with the Milwaukee Bucks, who were supposed to be playing the Orlando Magic in Game 5 of the first round of the Eastern Conference playoffs. But as the game was set to begin, the players were still in their locker room. The Bucks, it turns out, were on the phone with Wisconsin's Attorney General and Lieutenant Governor before the team came out and gave a statement. Here's part of
3: it. Despite the overwhelming plea for change, there has been no action. So our focus today cannot be on basketball. When we take the court and represent Milwaukee and Wisconsin, we are expected to play at a high level, give maximum effort and hold each other accountable. We hold ourselves to that standard. And in this moment, we are demanding the
1: same from lawmakers and law enforcement.
0: That set off a chain reaction, causing the NBA to announce that all of yesterday's playoff games would be postponed in solidarity. Even former players took part in the action. Kenny Smith, co-host of the NBA on TNT, turned off his mic and left the set after he heard the news. I think the biggest thing now is to kind of as a black man, as a former player, I think it's best
2: for me to support the players and just not be here tonight. And figure out what happens after that. Yeah, I, I just don't feel equipped
3: to And I respect that.
0: In an informal vote among the teams last night, the Los Angeles Lakers and LA Clippers both voted to end the playoffs and keep the strike going. LeBron James reportedly got so frustrated last night that he walked out entirely. But this morning, the players met and decided to finish out the postseason. But want to find new and improved ways to make social justice statements in the future. And it wasn't just the NBA that took action last night. The WNBA has been at the forefront of demanding social justice. And true to form, last night they also said, we're not playing. The Atlanta Dream's Elizabeth Williams gave their statement.
1: After speaking with representatives from teams playing tonight, as well as our WNBPA leadership, the consensus is to not play in tonight's slate of games and to kneel,
4: lock arms, and raise fists during the national anthem.
0: Over in Major League Baseball, the Milwaukee Brewers refused to leave their dugout for their game against the Cincinnati Reds in support of the Blake protests. Games between San Francisco Giants and the Los Angeles Dodgers and the San Diego Padres and Seattle Mariners were also postponed. And tennis player Naomi Osaka, the highest paid female athlete in the world, said that she was withdrawing from the semifinal of the Western and Southern Open. She said in her statement, quote, Before I am an athlete, I am a black woman. And as a black woman, I feel as though there are much more important matters at hand that need immediate attention rather than watching me play tennis. The heads of U.S. tennis responded saying that all semifinal matches would be postponed until Friday.
1: So much. That's all so much.
0: I mean, it was a great thing to see all these athletes standing in solidarity. You know what? They'll be like, we're not giving America their quote-unquote goods Mm -hmm. um, until someone
1: takes notice and takes action. Right. No more entertainment until you guys actually pay attention. And I I just watching like, the headlines come and tweets come across my phone as all of this was happening was just wild to watch the domino effect on um, starting with the Bucks and just going on from there. And the people that they got behind them, like Joe Biden and Barack Obama, both tweeted out in support of the Bucks action. And uh, it was a strike. We've said it many times. Totally a strike, not a boycott.
0: Yep. <laughs> all right, Hayes. Back to the rest of the headlines.
1: Yeah, uh, because there's still somehow more that we need to talk about. The CDC has changed its recommendations for who needs to be tested for coronavirus in a move that has scientists concerned. Earlier this week, the CDC quietly recommended that patients who are not displaying symptoms of COVID-19 shouldn't necessarily need a test, even if they've been potentially exposed to someone who's tested positive. No real explanation was given for the change, which goes against the thinking behind trying to trace and isolate positive cases. Yesterday, though, CNN reported that the decision was pushed onto the CDC after a meeting of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. As CNN's Sanjay Gupta reports, it wasn't a meeting that the NIH's Dr. Anthony Fauci was there for. Well, you know, so this task force meeting where this apparently was discussed was last Thursday. So I was asking Dr. Fauci about this, and he said this, I'm gonna read this because I wanna make sure I get it right. He said, I was under general anesthesia in the operating room last Thursday. was not part of any discussion or deliberation regarding these new testing recommendations. He went on to say, I'm concerned about the interpretation of these recommendations and worried it will give people the incorrect assumption that asymptomatic spread is not of great concern. In fact, it is. CDC Director Robert Redfield tried to walk back the changes, and it's not clear yet how the change will affect the number of tests that are conducted in the U.S. or how many new cases wind up being reported or missed because of this. California's Governor Gavin Newsom, at least, has already said his state will ignore this new guidance and continue testing as many people as possible. And finally, Hurricane Laura hit the Gulf Coast last night, and while not as catastrophic as meteorologists worried it was going to be, it's still been an intense storm system. Laura initially made landfall near Cameron, Louisiana as a Category 4 hurricane. As it moved inland, it weakened to a Category 1 storm. Thankfully, the storm surge that was predicted to be up to 20 feet in some places didn't reach those heights. But the storm is still dangerous, as it brings high winds and heavy rains across Texas and Louisiana. In hard-hit areas, rivers were bursting, roofs were torn off, buildings were completely destroyed, and many roads are impassable due to debris and flooding. A chemical fire at a battered plant has completely shut down Interstate 10 near Lake Charles, Louisiana. And the state's governor, John Bell Edwards, told residents near the fire, quote, to shelter in place until further notice and close your doors and windows. And uh, lastly, there's already been three deaths reported as a result of Hurricane Laura, all of whom were killed when trees fell on their homes. The deaths included two adult men and a 14-year-old girl. Other fatalities are highly possible as communities grapple with the extent of the damage.
0: Yeah, and not even just the extent of the damage, but also the extent of living in the middle of a pandemic while this is happening. So many people are displaced, and you know what? As we discussed in a previous episode, being displaced is not good during a pandemic. You need a place where you can safely protect your your health, your face, and uh, and to be able to wash your hands, etc.
1: Right? Like if you are taking shelter in uh in a place where the, you're being packed in with people, not great. Plus. Yesterday, I several times implored people in the path to get out of the way, and I was reminded after we taped about how hard that is for some people. Like, this is an area where the median income is $22,000, so it's really hard to flee if you don't have the resources. Whew. Okay. After this break, we got the authors of a bombshell report that's given us our closest look yet into China's Muslim detention centers. Be right back.
2: NFL fans, nothing compares to being there live. What a play! Now the crowd is alive. And the NFL's biggest season ever is now ready for the postseason. It's playoff time. We gotta win. NFL playoff tickets are on sale now. Don't miss your chance to be a part of the postseason action on the road to Super Bowl 56. Visit nfl.com slash tickets for a complete listing of games. That's nfl.com slash tickets
3: you mm-hmm. After 30 years, it's time to return to the halls of West Beverly High and hang out at the Peach Pit. On the podcast 90210MG, join Jenny Garth and Tori Spelling for a rewatch of the hit series Beverly Hills 90210 from the very beginning. We get to tell the fans all of the behind-the-scenes stories that actually happened. So they know what happened on camera, obviously, but we can tell them all the good stuff that happened off camera. Get all the juicy details of every episode that you've been wondering about for decades as 90210 0210 super superfan and radio host, Sissony, sits in with Jenny and Tori to reminisce, reflect, and relive each moment. From Brandon and Kelly's first kiss to shouting, Donna Martin
1: graduates. You have an amazing memory. You remember everything about the entire 10 years that we filmed that show.
3: And you remember absolutely nothing of the 10 years that we filmed that show. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to 90210-OMG on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Over the past few
0: years, we've heard more and more disturbing reports out of China about the mass detention of the Uyghur Muslim population. Where exactly they've been holding the majority of these detainees has been a mystery. Until now.
1: We're joined by Mega Rajagopalan, international correspondent BuzzFeed News, and Alison Killing, a licensed architect and geospatial analyst who uses maps and data to investigate urgent social issues. Together, they've put out a stunning report documenting hundreds of these camps. Good afternoon to both of you.
4: Hey, it's great to be here.
1: So Mega, can you give people a quick overview of what China's policy towards Xinjiang and the Uyghur population is as it stands right now?
4: Yeah, so um, Xinjiang is a huge region in Western China. It sits on the border of Central Asia, and it's home to around 12 million people who belong to uh, Muslim minority groups, including Uyghurs, Kazakhs, Kyrgyz, and and more. And starting in 2016, like late 2016, early 2017, the um, using rationale that's linked to national security, the government started implementing this campaign of um, very high-intensity digital and physical surveillance on the whole of the Muslim population in the region. And they started sending thousands of people to mass internment camps. And they were sending them to these camps for all kinds of reasons, almost all of which are not actually a crime, even under Chinese law. Um, Things like visiting a foreign website, um, having contact with Friends or family abroad, you know, downloading or using WhatsApp—all um, of these reasons were um, was were used as evidence that people had extremist thoughts and resulted in them being sent to these these camps. The Chinese government has described these facilities as being for vocational training um, or for education. Um, in December of last year, the government said that everybody had graduated from these vocational training facilities. We have found that to be very unlikely to be the case. Allison,
0: your investigation turned up over 150 of these compounds. Can you describe what these
5: camps consist of for people listening? Sure. Um we actually found more than that. Um so we found like 268, which have been built since sort of 2016, 2017, and then another 50 or so facilities which were in use in sort of early 2017, but which have now been retired from the programme, we believe. The earlier camps, they tended to be sort of like schools and hospitals. They were these like makeshift facilities that were sitting empty and then which the Chinese government then converted into camps. So often things that you would see with with those places was that these like blue-roofed sheds would be put up in the courtyards to provide extra space. You would see barbed wire fencing going up, especially in the courtyards. They'd create these sort of pens for holding prisoners in. You would see these like corridors linking the different buildings, which were yeah, security measures. And then in 2018, a sort of new phase began. So we started to see these like much bigger, much more permanent buildings, being built but much like permanent compounds in fact being built um much higher security features quite a few of the ones we found they were big enough to hold like 10,000 people the biggest one that we found could can hold up to about 42,000 we think it's it's absolutely huge it's crazy they're also like much more permanent in the way that they're built so instead of like barbed wire that you can like put up and take down in a matter of days you have suddenly have these like really heavy thick concrete walls around the perimeter of these compounds they have guard towers built into them at the corners and in the middle of the walls there's these really high heavy entrance gates which are sort of three or four stories tall in some cases they're much more intimidating places they're much more permanent and and they're huge and there's a load of them so
1: Mega, you've been pursuing this story for pretty sure years now. Uh, what made you first want to track down these locations?
4: Well, you know, um I wrote a piece for for BuzzFeed News about this um in 2017 and um it for for that piece I had gotten the GPS coordinates of one of these camps uh which actually has since been probably been decommissioned. Um and I went to go see this camp. I just flew into the city and then um took a taxi and went to see it, and I was very surprised to see that there was a sign on the outside that said, you know, that it was a re-education facility, and there was a, um, you know, there was a police kiosk outside, and there was a police officer who told me not to take pictures of it. I kind of thought when I showed up, I would have to talk to a bunch of people to figure out what it was or that I wouldn't be able to get there, but it was, it was, really clearly marked and this was sort of before the government started saying that this was a legitimate program that involves no coercion and stuff like that so it made me think like if you know if these Facilities are, are out there, you know, this is the 21st century, like, how is it possible that they're able to deny uh, detaining people on such a huge scale? Like, how is this possible um, in an era where everybody has access to pretty good quality free satellite imagery? So it made me start to think, like, you know, I mean, it's crazy that we only know such a small um, tip of the iceberg know, view of, of what this program against Muslim minorities actually is, it made me think that it would be really useful if we could see a kind of broader perspective onto it.
5: Alison, how did you know where to look for these sites? Megan and I started talking about doing this work back in, I think it was like summer 2018. And we talked at first about satellite imagery. We thought about sort of machine learning and explored what, what it might mean to use that. And then I... I kind of heard about um, censorship that existed in Baidu's street view and I'd heard about sort of industrial areas being f- clumsily photoshopped out of the street view. And so I I kind of wondered if something similar was maybe happening with with these camps. And so I started to go and look at the locations of some of the ones that had already been verified that, um, that were already known to see what I could see there. There wasn't any... Yeah, like that. There, there wasn't any um, Street View imagery available in those places, but instead, like I found that when I was zooming in, I was like getting to a certain point, zooming in, and then suddenly this white square would appear, and then you'd like zoom in a bit further, and the satellite imagery would be gone, and you would just have like normal map tiles because Xinjiang doesn't have a lot of high-resolution satellite imagery. So you zoom in close, and you just get the maps, but there were still these like weird blank light gray squares, and I found that. Um, I could actually replicate this i could find it only at this one zoom level and then we started to do this little feasibility study like well maybe it's happening in other places as well and so we we started to look at other known complications and found a similar thing happening there
1: mega you spoke to over two dozen former detainees about their time in these camps was there anything about their experience that uh rang true for all of them
5: yeah um
4: you know i talked to People from lots of different walks of life, uh, you know, people who were rich enough to own gov- like luxury cars, um, former government officials who had never broken a rule in their life, uh, a former imam, um, you know, people who were were teenagers, were 18, 19 at the time they were detained, um, you know, illiterate farmers from the countryside. All of them had been sort of pulled together in the, into this camp system. And in some ways they didn't have a lot in common because they were from such different backgrounds and even the things they were accused of doing were a little bit different. And I've said this to Allison recently. I think the, um, the thing that I noticed about them, like I sort of went to these interviews fully expecting to hear about some really horrible stuff happening. um, And I did, you know, I heard from people who were beaten, who had their hair lopped off, like who, um, you know, who were, thrown into solitary confinement, like all kinds of abuses like this. But I do think that one thing that stood out to me is that people don't really talk about those as much as they talk about how much it harms them to be forcibly confined to be detained for no reason, like for ne- never being told a reason, knowing that you've worked to be a law-abiding citizen your whole life, like never having committed a crime, um, never being given any paperwork or any way to, you know, to protest against this. And the reason this is happening is because these people all have the misfortune to be born to a particular ethnicity that um, the government thinks is, is sort of fundamentally, you know, predisposed to what it terms extremist thought. And so that's the thing that really stood out to me is um, just that aspect of of life in the camps that people just found to be so, so degrading.
0: So what has been the Chinese response to all this information you presented to them?
4: You know, we tried in many different ways to reach out to the Chinese foreign ministry, up to and including me dropping off a letter physically to the Chinese embassy in London in person. The foreign ministry did not get back to us, but the Chinese consulate in New York did respond to us. um, And it was a pretty detailed response. And essentially, they said, first of all, that there are not a million Uyghurs detained in Xinjiang. They said that it was a made-up number. They also said that the camps are for vocational training and that people inside them enjoy full mobility and rights. They said that they provide halal food to prisoners and all kinds of other kind of creature comforts. And um, interestingly, I think they almost word for word repeated a line by the governor of Xinjiang that we write about in the story, something he said in December 2019, which is that people who are in the camp system have been set free, essentially. He said that people have graduated from this vocational training program. Wow.
0: Is there anything that people outside of China can be doing now that we know these details about these
4: camps? It's a really hard one. You know, I've been saying for four years, you know, raising awareness is good, but there's actually a lot of awareness now, and um, I'm not really sure. But I do know that um, the Uyghur diaspora community really, really appreciates it when people from outside of that community are interested in this issue, interested to learn more, are sharing information about it, you know, when people connect with them and go to protests and sort of stuff like that they really value that because I think they still feel like they're a very small group and that a lot of people don't recognize this stuff. And on top of that, there's a lot of good organizations that have been doing both research and uh, humanitarian work, particularly in Kazakhstan, where a lot of former detainees have gone because of Kazakh government rules that permit resettlement for people of Kazakh heritage. And people come out of these camps And they have, as you can imagine, all manner of health problems uh, because they're being forced to sit in stress positions. The food is really bad. A lot of times people go in with pre-existing conditions. They're very elderly. They can't handle life inside an internment camp. And beyond that, I don't think I've ever, I've been interviewing people about this for four years now. I've never interviewed someone where I didn't think, man, you have a really serious kind of trauma. And of of course they would, right? So um, I think like for people who do want to get involved, there are some NGOs in Kazakhstan, and that help people um, like former detainees get their lives together, get the health care that they really need. There's other NGOs that both in the United States and in, in Europe and Kazakhstan, elsewhere that are doing lots of really, really good research on this subject, you know, learning about uh, aspects of the story that we haven't written about yet. Um, you know, things like uh, forced labor, for instance, uh, the treatment of women in these facilities. Um, there, there are so many dimensions to this that um, I think deserve greater scrutiny.
1: Woof. Well, Mega Allison, thank you so much for your reporting and thank you so much for joining us. It's been really illuminating and uh, horrifying.
4: <laughs> thanks for having us on.
5: Yeah, thanks for having us.
4: Okay, we have time for
0: one more thing, and I want to talk about the only thing my queer group chats have been talking about this week Ammonite.
1: Isn't that a pokemon Amonite? no
0: okay i mean yes it is but more importantly it's a very gay period piece romance probably a sad one because hollywood thinks it's sad to be gay starring kate winslet and Sersha Rodin. uh the trailer dropped yesterday and yes it is very gay what is it cheap
5: tourist fodder beautiful It pleases me you've struck up a friendship together.
0: What is it? Something? Nothing? And in a Hollywood Reporter interview, Kate said that she and Sersha took over the choreography of their own sex scene since director Francis Lee, who I must point out here is a man, was nervous. According to Kate, it went down like this. I just said to him, listen, let us work it out. And we did. She continued, we'll start here. We'll do this. Then you climb here. I mean, we marked out the beats of the scene so that we were anchored in something that just supported the narrative. I felt the proudest I've ever felt doing a love scene in Ammonite. And I felt by far the least self-conscious.
1: That's amazing. Uh, First of all, I did not realize that Francis Lee was a man. Thank you for telling me that. I was so sure it would be a woman. (laughs) Yep, man who wrote and directed it. I'm (laughs)
0: Um, so, yeah, I mean, yes, of course she felt the least self-conscious and she felt comfortable. I mean, that's just what's going to happen when one, you're in charge of your own body and these sex scenes. And two, you know, if it had to be done by someone, if I were put in that situation, I would be more comfortable with a woman helping, not your male director. Um. And I have to talk about, because I thought it was the funniest thing ever when my group chat was talking about it. One of my friends was like, doing the choreography of your own lesbian sex scene is the gayest thing you can do. Top five minimum.
1: <laughs> it is up there in terms of like, if you have a ranking, like if you posters on your wall of like ranking of gayest things, I'd say it's at least number two. It is up yes.
0: there. <laughs> 100% okay so the movie will premiere September 11th at the Toronto Film Festival and you know what I'll probably watch it because I'll watch any gay scraps I can get Hayes
1: don't blame you for that at all do not blame you at all (laughs) all right that's it for today join us tomorrow when our favorite podcast advice columnist Stephen Leconte joins us for another edition of DM911
0: and remember withholding your cash is a boycott withholding your labor is a
1: strike solidarity Be sure to subscribe to News O'Clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you go for your sound stories.
0: And please take the time to leave us a rating and a review. It helps us figure out what you like about the show versus what you love about the show. And remember to set your alarm so you never miss an episode of News O'Clock.
2: The NFL is back and the NFL app has you covered.